Universities are uniquely placed to explore complex problems that our collective future depends on. They do this in a rigorous, ethical, collaborative, and enduring way. Thanks for joining me on this bonus episode of Impact at UTS, a podcast where we speak to some of the top thinkers at the University of Technology, Sydney, and talk through research engagement strategies, what it takes to deliver excellent game-changing research, and how your research can achieve real-world impact. I'm your host, Associate Professor Martin Blemel, and over the summer, a few things have changed. Vaccines are coming. They're a great example of university industry collaboration for broad social benefit. And on a more personal note, UTS is transforming my faculty into Pan University TD School, as in transdisciplinary school, and my title has changed to Director of Research. In my new role, I'll continue to drive the TD research agenda for the TD School, as well as for the university. That'll include looking for creative ways to couple the research with other forms of engagement like coursework, enterprise learning, consulting, and contract research. Now, TD research isn't exclusive to us. It occurs across all UTS, um, but within TD School, we're setting our sights on four themes. Futures, technology and humanity, transformative learning, and cohesive societies. So if any of those themes appeal to you as a potential collaborator, please reach out. You know where to find me. I'd like to take this time now to welcome you to 2021. I hope you managed to take some much-needed time out over the holiday to recharge and reflect. For many, 2020 was a challenging year. Some would say unprecedented year. Some people are actually kind of tired of the word unprecedented because it's, there's been an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. Either way, I thought we could take the opportunity to begin this year with something more optimistic as we reactivate the campus. I want to share with you three conversations with UTS researchers who have creatively found a way to turn 2020's challenges into opportunities. In this bonus episode of Impact at UTS, we're going to hear from some of our outstanding colleagues who have just been recognized for their contributions at the UTS Vice Chancellor's Awards for Research Excellence on February 4th, 2021. For those who may not know, the UTS Vice Chancellor's Awards for Research Excellence started over a decade ago. Their purpose is to publicly recognize the outstanding contributions UTS researchers make towards helping shape the world we live in. Whether it's advancing public health and policy, revolutionizing society through future industries, or building a more sustainable and livable world. UTS is a public university committed to delivering excellent research with real-world impact, and the Vice Chancellor's Research Excellence Awards recognize these efforts. So let's get started. I'm really excited to introduce you to the three research rock stars you'll be hearing from today. UTS Medal Recipient for Excellence in Teaching and Research, Associate Professor of Social and Political Sciences, Christina Ho. She's from the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. Sometimes I characterize my work as a study of tiger mothers. You'll also be hearing from the recipient of the UTS Medal for Research Impact. Now, this is a familiar voice for you dedicated listeners. Professor David Suggett. The key here has been people and partnerships without question. You know, there's, there's a lot of clever people doing a lot of really cool science and a lot of science that has impact. But transformation of impact re- really rests on connections. David leads the Future Reefs program in the Climate Change Cluster at UTS and was featured in episode two. If you haven't yet, be sure to put that episode of Impact at UTS on your listen list. And finally, the recipient of the Chancellor's Medal for Research Excellence. Associate Professor Sodong Huang. Sodong is the Deputy Director of the Center for Autonomous Systems. He's published more than 180 research papers and was named one of the 100 most influential scholars in the field of robotics. I always trying to see like the, a robot is like a human. For example, uh, a human has uh, uh, different uh, sensors like eyes, ears, and so on. A robot also have sensors. So uh, really thinking about a robot comparing with human make uh, many of our problems in robotics very interesting. 
First up, we're going to be hearing Associate Professor Christina Ho, who spoke with Impact Studios executive producer Emma Lancaster earlier in the week. Just a quick side note, we interviewed all the winners before they knew that they'd taken home the top cogs. Listen in, as each of these dedicated and insightful scholars discuss their approach to delivering excellent research with Impact. My name is Christina Ho. I am an Associate Professor in Social and Political Sciences in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. I've been nominated for the award for research and teaching. My work is really drawn from, a lot of it is drawn from my personal experience as a migrant in this country. So I've always been interested in looking at how that affects your life chances and I suppose issues around diversity and equality in this country. So that drew me to looking at experiences of migrants in the education system. So your research, it's about cultural diversity, equity and education. I like to think of my work, sometimes I characterise my work as a study of tiger mothers. So there are these stereotypes about these pushy Asian tiger parents who force their children to just study all the time. And that, for me, that has raised a lot of misunderstanding, I think, between different members of our community where people don't understand why perhaps Asian parents approach parenting and education maybe slightly differently to non-Asians in Australia. And I suppose in recent years, with the, the escalation of migration from Asia, it has really transformed the face of our education system in some ways. I've particularly looked at kids of Asian migrants who do really well in school. So if you look at HSC results, you look at you know who goes to selective schools, there are a lot of Asian Australian students who are dominant there. And that's given rise to some kind of anxiety, sometimes even resentment against Asian migrants for being tiger parents. You know, like they, the accusation is that they push their kids too hard and that means that other kids are being left behind. So um, I guess I wanted to research, you know, how true are these stereotypes and where does that kind of behaviour come from? And that's what led me to write my book that was published last year called Aspiration and Anxiety because they're the sort of twin motivations that I see as driving this so-called tiger parenting. And Christina, what kind of questions do you think your research raises for society, for us to kind of grapple with? What's the discussion that you want to provoke? The main questions that I think come out of my research are questions that I think will be familiar to a lot of people that live in especially cities like Sydney and Melbourne, where there is a lot of cultural diversity, but there's also a lot of competition and anxiety in education. And I think the combination of those two has led to somewhat of a racialization of this debate. And now I think because our education system is so competitive, is so hierarchical, we've got private schools, we've got selective schools, we've got partially selective schools, these kinds of anxieties really, I think, play into our ideas about race, ethnicity and culture because Asian Australians you know, are stereotyped to do very well. So I think there is a lot of sort of cultural elements to the kind of anxiety that we are now facing. And I guess I would like to ask the question, wh- where does that anxiety come from? 
And I suppose what can we as a community and what can government policy do to try and address that? In the Impact at UTS podcast, we often talk about a researcher's approach or strategy to engagement when it comes to their research, engagement being communicating your research with people outside of the academy. Can you tell me what your approach to engagement is when it comes to your work? My research relies on me talking to a lot of different people. So I guess it is inherently something that is based in specific communities. So I get out into school communities and I talk to parents and students about their experiences of education. I also talk to educators in schools and in other places of learning, you know, such as tutoring centres. So I suppose I see my research as trying to reflect the conversations, the concerns, the anxieties that are happening there. And I have some pretty strong links with education researchers, but also educators, people that are involved in education policy. So, for instance, the New South Wales Department of Education, the Teachers Federation, various kinds of professional bodies. And I try and just stay in touch with these people because they're the ones that know what's happening on the ground at a day to day level. And how do you approach those end users or involve them in your research? Well, sometimes it is about getting their advice. So because my research does involve getting into communities and talking to people, I often do need some advice on how best to do that, you know, how best to approach school communities, for example, local communities. But also I like to report back to the end users. So sometimes if I've released a report or a paper, I'll just let them know. Sometimes they'll invite me to do a talk to staff or to a conference or a forum or something like that. So I like to see it as a, as a two-way process. And do you think that two-way process, is that what helps you generate research impact? I think, yes, I think the two-way process does help with getting some kind of impact from my research because ultimately what I want to do, I want to see change happen from my research. So for example, just to take a specific example, my research on selective schools has raised a lot of questions about you know, access and equity issues relating to who gets to go to these schools. And at the same time, I know that the New South Wales government has been conducting a lot of research themselves and a review into gifted education. Um, and so you know, I've been involved in consultations, but I guess more broadly, because I've been trying to get my research out there in the broader community, those public debates that are happening in communities, in the media, online, there are a lot of people also discussing these things now and asking questions about, well, are our selective schools meeting the brief that they were supposed to? And that has actually led to some questions being raised in terms of policy and certainly education ministers over the years have come out and addressed some of the concerns that people have raised about access to these kinds of, you know, very prestigious schools, the amount of money that some families are spending on getting their kids prepared to do the selective school test. For example, Mark Scott, who's the New South Wales Secretary, um, Department of Education, came out and said, you know, there are issues around inequality of access to these schools. When some families are spending tens of thousands of dollars investing in private tutoring to prepare their kids for the test. So, you know, I know now it's on their radar. And for me, that's a really rewarding outcome to have from my research. And do you have any particular plan in mind, Christina, for how you're going to continue your research work in 2021 as we continue to work under the impacts of a global pandemic? 
my research plans in 2021 are, are really contingent on what happens with COVID, but I've been lucky so far that I've, I am working with some schools and I'm hoping to actually go in, into those schools. We're liaising with a lot of the school principals at the moment and I've got my fingers crossed that they'll let outsiders come into the school to talk to people and to observe classes. They've said a tentative yes, but I'm really looking forward to being able to go do some field work in schools, talk to teachers, students and families. And that's really the next stage of my research, looking at issues around education, diversity, inequality and access to really high quality education that really all of our kids deserve. So you've been nominated for the UTS Teaching and Research Medal. How does your research complement your teaching and vice versa? I teach in the social and political sciences major as part of the Bachelor of Communication degree. And in my teaching, I find that there's quite a good confluence between my research and my teaching because the same kinds of themes crop up in both. So in my teaching, we focus a lot on issues around social inequality, cultural diversity, and really kind of just the pressing sort of social policy issues of the day. So there's a lot of overlap between what I research and what I teach. I'm able to use a lot of, uh, for example, case studies from my research to illustrate, you know, what might look like abstract points in social sciences in my teaching. For instance, the work that I've done with a lot of migrant communities really helps me to illustrate the kinds of issues around inequality, diversity, racism. And these are the kinds of themes that come up in our social and political sciences in our teaching all the time. And in your opinion, Christina, what does it take to deliver excellent research? For me, excellent research is research that addresses a real world issue that can help us to address something that has been a longstanding problem in our society. So for me, it is about issues around inequality and diversity in education. There's plenty of research out there that shows that that there are growing inequalities in education. And for me, excellent research is research that can really shed some insight into why this is happening and what we can do about it. In terms of how to do excellent research, what I really appreciate about working at UTS is the enormous autonomy that we are given to determine our own research agendas. I don't get anyone telling me that's the wrong approach or that's the wrong topic to research. You know, there's a trust that we understand how to approach our research and how to frame our research. And I really appreciate that freedom. That was Associate Professor Christina Ho from the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences in conversation with Impact Studios Executive Producer Emma Lancaster. Christina was the 2020 recipient for the UTS Medal for Excellence in Teaching and Research. Congratulations, Christina. I always love it when teaching and research are are integrated together into one amazing, I guess, product or outcome. And if you want to find out more about Christina's award-winning research, why not check out her book, Aspiration and Anxiety, Asian Migrants and Australian Schooling. Just head online or find it at any good bookstore. Now, for those avid listeners of Impact at UTS, this voice will sound familiar. I'm hoping what's going to keep me busy is really resuming our activities in the field. I mean, literally, we are bags packed by the door and we're waiting to get on the plane to Queensland. Last year, we spoke to Professor David Suggett about how he and his research team have found a small solution to a big problem that's facing the world's largest reef. And that solution came by engaging those whose life and livelihoods are tied to the health of the Great Barrier Reef. David has just been announced as the winner of the 2020 UTS Medal for Research Impact. About two years ago, whilst we're on the Great Barrier Reef, we were working in partnership with the tourism industry 
And they started to tell us that because of climate change, mass bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef in consecutive years, they were really seeing their what we call high value tourism reefs deteriorate. And they wanted to adopt new tools and workflows under the umbrella of coral gardening as a means to take better care of their sites, what we call site stewardship. And all of a sudden, we we sort of realised that our work for the past 15 years actually had this huge applied purpose where we could now take all of this knowledge of how the environment shapes the ability of corals to grow and actually use it to grow coral with an industry that actually needed help. So it was a really exciting development. Now, you spoke to Impact at UTS last year about how the reef rehabilitation activities that you and your team have been doing are being integrated into existing tourism operator models. So I'm keen for you to speak a little bit more about that and the plans you have for this year. So the sort of epiphany moment we had of of understanding that the tourism industry wanted to work with researchers to to propagate and grow coral to, to rehabilitate their sites gave rise to a new program that we termed the Coral Nurture Program. And it's a consortium of tourism operators that we work with to to develop tools, workflows and replant coral onto reefs. So over the past sort of 18 months to two years of doing this, we've managed to grow over 5,000 corals and replant 21,000 corals nowadays across six sites. And, And this has been an absolute game changer in terms of how we can aid natural recovery by supplementing it with sort of fast-tracked recovery. So the Coral Nurture Programme has actually received worldwide attention by doing this because all of a sudden many other stakeholders around the world, it doesn't necessarily have to be tourism, it may be um, subsistence fishing communities, have realised that actually by partnering with other organisations and adopting sort of the low-tech approach that we've been taking to propagate coral, you can suddenly start to to do this at scale and a scale that matters. The one criticism with with coral propagation, what's sometimes termed coral gardening, is that it can only be done very locally with with minimum impact. We've actually changed that idea by by being able to do it bigger, better, faster. So where this has now taken us through our consortium of operators under the Coral Nurture Programme has has been in a slightly different direction. We've just gained funding for the next three and a half years years through new funding partners. I I can't unfortunately disclose who those partners are just yet. The official announcement will come out in about um, two or three weeks whilst we're back up on the reef. The idea here is to say, well, we know we we can replant lots of coral. The goal over the next few years is to plant well over 100,000 corals. And we're doing this at such high scale that we're changing the environment in a way that we don't really know what it means for reef ecosystems, okay? We're trying to replicate the natural ecology, but we can't do it perfectly. So the real questions we're asking now is when we replant and rehabilitate corals at scale en masse with planting, what are the effects both to the ecosystem, but more importantly, what are the effects to society, to the industry? Is it a net gain to the industry, to to society? Does it make the industry more resilient? The reason I say that as well is because As the operators become more skilled at adopting this into their everyday life and and business models, they gain new capacity to survive as an industry. And this in turn means that they have new financing models available to them to sustain themselves as an industry. So we're exploring sustainable financing to take this forward as a new management tool. 
into the future. So that's in a nutshell how we're going from kind of a new model to a model at scale that will enable not just ecological transformation, but social transformation of a critical industry within Australia. Well, congratulations on receiving that funding. So it seems like you've been very active in your 2020. How has COVID impacted your research? COVID was, uh, you know, obviously it was a terrible year for everyone, but we've been very fortunate to gain funding. And and actually, on that note, I wouldn't say COVID did us a favour, but I do need to clarify what I mean by that statement. But one of the unintended outcomes of the Coral Nurture Programme was that the tourism industry in Queensland was entirely mothballed under COVID-19. Tourism dried up overnight. But through the Coral Nurture Programme, um, what we were able to demonstrate is that industries with this new capacity to propagate coral could repurpose their infrastructure into one of reef maintenance and not just be tourism operators. So again, we were able to show how this this really gave rise to new tourism, um, sustainability, industry resilience. So again, it's shown us that we were sort of a little bit ahead of our time in, in really how new industry capacity and sustainability could safeguard the industry moving forward. So tell me a bit more, David, about your unique approach to partnerships. I'm keen to hear where the UN comes into all of this as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting development for us as well. Because of our success through the Coral Nurture Programme, it really was a world first. We, through our new tools and workflows of the Coral Nurture Programme, one of which I hadn't really spoken about yet, which we called Coral Clip. It's a new device to basically reattach corals really quickly to the reef. That's what enables us to get out so many corals back to um, rehabilitate reef sites. That's what what also has has really gained global attention through this sort of new tools, new workflows, new partnerships. That meant that I was asked to chair a new working group for an international committee to basically provide a set of guidelines to governments on how to adopt coral gardening within broader management frameworks and really thinking about reef management into well into the 21st century where we really want to ensure the future of reefs. And this coincided with the UN launching their Decade of Ecosystem Restoration, which actually officially is launched in, in June this year and will last until 2030. And so we were pro- approached through UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme, to really provide the documentation to, pro- to, to really then um, inform governments how to do this. And Coral Nurture Programme and the work of UTS in partnership with the operators is featured as a major case study behind that and how you can start to, to build novel partnerships to achieve new management goals at scale. David, in terms of the Coral Nurture Program, it's only really been formally active, my understanding is from 2018. And in that time, you and your team have achieved an incredible amount. So I'm just wondering if you have a unique approach, you know, how have you been able to achieve so much in such a short period of time? Why is research impact so important to you? I think the the key here has been um, people and partnerships without question you know there's there's a lot of clever people doing a lot of really cool science and a lot of science that has impact but transformation of impact re- really rests on connections and certainly in our case we had a serendipitous moment where the the industry operators we were working with we just really gelled we had lots and lots of common ideas and common goals from different directions and i think that that sort of common interest creates a lot of syn- synergy and energy to to do something new and and different and of course when you when you engage with stakeholders on coral reefs it, it really is their livelihood and to be able to see how your research 
can impact on someone's livelihood directly is quite a, a, a transformative moment, I think, for you as a scientist. Quite often we do research and we, we kind of know what our impact is in a passive sense. It will have benefit to X, Y, and Z. But really, until you talk to those beneficiaries and, and really understand the problems, actually implementing your impact is, is not really possible. So a lot of our science is, is really fantastic, but it's not necessarily feasible in terms of a real impact and de dem demonstrable impact. So I would say that our unique approach has been, you know, talking to people, really recrafting our questions from, you know, people's perspectives and really embedding impact into the to really uh, fundamental science. But as I said, it comes back really down to, to people at the end of the day. That was Professor David Suggett, a marine biologist and leader of the Future Reefs program, a core team within the climate change cluster at UTS. I can't believe the Coral Nurture program was only started in 2018. The widespread impact David and his team have had in such a short time is inspiring. I can't wait to see what he does next. So we know that discovery, problem-solving, creativity, and integrity are all crucial to great research and learning environments. One UTS researcher who knows the importance of a strong research culture is Associate Professor Sudong Huang. A good research environment is, is really important for us to deliver good uh, research outcomes. And the re research environment in our center for autonomous system uh, is a very good one. Uh, we are all collaborating with each other, we trust each other, we give opportunity to others. So this good environment, good research culture, uh, really help everyone. Sudong Huang has received the Chancellor's Medal for Research Excellence in 2020. This award honors sustained research excellence at the highest level. Sudong is the Deputy Director of the Center for Autonomous Systems. His research lies in the areas of applied mathematics and robotics, and his brilliant mind imagines technologies that have never existed before. Here he is in conversation with Impact Studios executive producer Emma Lancaster, a few days out from being named the winner of the Chancellor's Medal for Research Excellence. Uh, my name is uh, Sodong Huang. I'm an associate professor in robotics. I'm in the School of Mechanical and Mechatronic Engineering in Faculty of Engineering and IT. I'm nominated for Chancellor's Medal for Research Excellence. So what drew you to your work in the field of robotics? My PhD and my first two postdoc positions are all in control area. Uh, in particular, it's in a kind of control theory. After I did my postdoc in control area, I got uh, uh, offers uh, doing robotics and also control as well. But I chose to do robotics uh, and come to UTS from 2004. Because I found robotics is more interesting and also have many real applications. I think this pretty attracted me to keep working on robotics in the last uh, 16 years. Were you interested in robotics as a kid? Not really. Probably when I was young, <laughs> there's no, no much robotics there yet. Yeah, but uh, I think uh, when I really started doing robotics, I feel more and more interesting and I really enjoy the work. And Sudong, you imagine technologies for a world that doesn't exist yet. So where do you draw your inspiration from? I always trying to see like the, a robot is like a human. For example, a uh, human has uh, different uh, sensors like eyes, ears, and so on. A robot also has sensors. And a human has hands, and the robot has hands as well. So I'm always thinking about how can we make the robot as close as human doing. 
and uh, we have brains and the robot has uh, a computer inside its uh, body and so on. So uh, really thinking about a robot comparing with human make uh, many of our problems in robotics very interesting. And we are developing some like a very novel and good algorithm on that aspect. So I feel really proud of <laughs> being able to develop those algorithm, like trying to make the robot behave more similar to human. And how would you explain that work you do to a lay person? Yeah, basically, when us human perform any task, uh, we need to first use our sensors, for example, our eyes, to understand the environment around us. And then also we want to work out our own location uh, within the environment. Then we can start to really move our body, uh, move our hands to do the task. Similarly for robot, robot also needs use sensors to understand the environment and work out its own location relative to the other things in the environment. And after that, robot can take appropriate actions to complete any task. So my research area focuses on developing algorithms for robot to use the sensors to understand the environment and work out its own location within the environment. The work that you're doing, Sudong, who are the end users or who is it that you expect to use these robotics? The problem is uh, useful in most of a robot navigation task, especially when the robot moves to an unfamiliar environment. And this can be a robot search and rescue, can be robot operating in a challenging, difficult, unknown environment. Uh, for example, we have a project uh, with RMS uh, about underwater robot bridge pipe cleaning. So this robot uh, need to be able to go to the across the bridge pile and sense the bridge pile to understand which part need to be cleaned and then perform operation using high pressure water to clean the bridge pile. So we have some practical project. We're also working on um, multiple uh, robot system for container terminals. There's an uh, autonomous uh, stratocarrier used in both Brisbane and Sydney, and we work on how to coordinate those uh, stratocarriers such that they can complete the tasks moving different uh, containers from here to there very efficiently. So we do have some practical industry-related projects. They are our end users. But in general, our work on robotics can be applied to many areas, for example, search and rescue and uh, autonomous driving and so on. So you're creating robots that can be placed in an unknown location and then operate in a way making decisions about their environment and potential hazards. I can see that working really well in natural disaster zones and, like you said, for cleaning those underwater bridge pylons. Yes. Is there any particular approach you take when you're trying to conduct research engagement? I would say my approach to engagement is to keep telling people around me about what I'm doing and I'm really exciting about what I'm doing in research. Probably one interesting story is I actually injured my leg and my arm when I play football <laughs> a few years back. And I talked to my surgeon who treated me at that time. I told him I'm working in robotics area and my research is kind of related to surgical robotics. So the surgeon saw some interest, but he was a bit busy in those days. But from last year, I think because of COVID, there are 
less busy, and he brought his friends to come to talk to us about exactly what we are doing, and we have a few meetings and discussions. And after a few discussions, they have agreed to support us to work on a research project. And that project is about using a robot manipulator to help performing hip replacement, which is a very important operation in their area. Wow. So let me get this straight. So you had an injury last year? Yeah, not probably two, two, three years back. But yeah, but I, I broke my arm and also I broke my, one of my ligaments and the doctor treated me a few times. And through that connection, you're now collaborating together on a robot to assist in hip replacements. Yeah, hip, hip replacement. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess you never know who you're going to meet or collaborate with. Yeah. Also, something not very good at the beginning uh, end up with something good at the end. Sudong, you have impressively published over 180 research papers. You've been named one of the 100 most influential scholars in the field of robotics in 2018, that was. How do you deliver excellent research with impact? How do you approach your work and how do you have so much success? We always aiming for excellence in research. And this is what I'm doing and also what I'm telling my team to do. So if only myself, I can't achieve that much of like good results. But with my excellent team members, we are able to work together and achieve a lot of good results. So I think one thing is to set a good example for my team members. And then we all work happily together and we are helping each other to grow. I think that's probably one good reason for us to be able to achieve this. So collaboration is key here. Yes. And what advice would you have for any early career researchers who are just starting out? Any particular words of wisdom that you could share? I think for early career researchers, I think keep the curiosity is probably very important in research. So we always use this curiosity to ask many important questions and try to answer many difficult questions. So keep keep the curiosity is a good one. And also good research takes time. So don't expect to be able to do something good with a very short time period. So be patient. Also keep an open mind. Always learn from others and keep improving yourself. That's some some keywords I want to say to early career researchers. But I think another thing I want to add is a good research environment is is very important for us to deliver good uh, research outcomes. And the research environment in our center for autonomous system uh, is a very good one. Uh, We are becoming a robotics institute shortly, but uh, this group, people are all collaborating with each other. We trust each other. We give opportunity to others. So this good environment, good research culture really help everyone. So, yeah, I really appreciate this environment as well. That was Associate Professor Su Dong Huang with some great advice for those who are just starting out on their research journey. Curiosity, collaboration, time, and a strong research culture. And a strong research culture is what we have here at UTS. But research culture can be hard to define. Excellent research should be a given for universities. But a good research culture is about more than excellent research. It includes being open to collaborating across disciplines and making your work accessible to others outside the ivory tower. Cultures are also a living thing and change over time. 
across many universities, the KPIs and incentives and the metrics are shifting from rewarding publishing within narrow fields of research to incentivizing collaborating across disciplines and sectors on projects that are equally issues-based and theory-driven. That means we need to be solving the societal challenges facing us and rise up to those challenges. And at UTS, we're agile, we've shown we can adapt and change to work within new environments and work closely with our partners, governments, industry, and communities. By doing this, we can actually transform society and come up with solutions we need for our future. So that brings us to the end of this bonus episode of Impact at UTS. Congratulations to all the winners of the UTS Vice Chancellor's Awards for Research Excellence. The work you're doing to make game-changing research with real-world impact is so important and needed. Keep going! Thanks to the three research rock stars, Associate Professor Christina Ho, Professor David Suggett, and Associate Professor Tsudong Huang. We loved hearing from you. You can find out more about the research taking place at UTS and the exciting things we have happening here. Just visit uts.edu.au and click on the Research and Teaching tab. While you're at it, why not check out our research strategy or complete the ResHub Research Impact Module? You'll find the links in our show notes. Thanks to everyone who has listened, contributed, fed back, or completed the Research Impact Module after listening to the Impact at UTS podcast. It's been a pleasure putting this together for you. I'm your host, Associate Professor Martin Blemel. I hope 2021 proves to be a year for you to create, discover, problem solve, and innovate. And as Associate Professor Sudong Huang suggests, remain curious. Thanks to everyone that made this series possible. To our resident impact and engagement expert, Julian Zapparo. For the Brains Trust in the UTS Research Office, including Catherine McElhone and Scott McWhorter. And UTS External Communication Advisor for Research, Andrew Parker. And Internal Communication Officer for Research, Samira Rahman. To our wonderful host, Associate Professor Martin Bleemel. And of course, the team at Impact Studios. Alison Chan, Audio Producer. Adrian Walton, Sound Engineer. Ben Vozzo, Impact Manager. Impact Studios Executive Producer, Emma Lancaster. And Impact Studios Managing Director, Tamsin Peach.